Good morning. My name is Nathan Bingerman, and like uh, Pastor Kerry mentioned, I'm one of the leaders here at Freedom Village Church. Um, it is my privilege this morning to share with you from God's Word. Um, when I was asked to do the sermon today, I kind of jumped at the chance to study 2 Corinthians. Um, not necessarily because I'm very familiar with it. Actually, I needed an excuse, wanted an excuse to study it a little bit deeper. Um, a couple years back, I was studying 1 Corinthians um, in a class, and I've always wanted to get to 2 Corinthians, so this was sort of my, my chance to do that. And uh, I hope to, to share from 2 Corinthians and uh, give you something from that book. We're not going to go through every single verse, every single word of the book, um, so hopefully I can draw out some points um, from the text, to draw out something uh, from what's going on. I moved my hand up. Oh, sorry. I was touching the battery pack, I guess. Uh, <laughs> so why a sermon on just one book? Well, um, here at Freedom Village Church, we often do a sermon series on one book. One book is sort of the, the most distinct unit of the New Testament. Um, most sermons, exegetical, um, uh, so expositional sermons are from a passage of the New Testament or a passage of the Bible. So I figured um, I'm kind of governed by the, the limit of, of this book, and hopefully there's some unity, there's some message um, that we can get from this book, that we can draw from this book. And really, my interest in First and Second Corinthians is there's a bunch of cool stuff in there. Um, and I encourage you to read it for yourself. Part of this is maybe to kind of pique your interest, intrigue you um, with what's there, and maybe you can go read it for yourself. There's some very interesting things in there. But really, I think that Paul has a lot to say about the church in First and Second Corinthians. And so sort of the question that I want to ask of the text today and see if there's, there's something that we can do um, from the text in our lives is... At Freedom Village Church, we also like to say, go be the church. We'll say it today. What does that look like? What does that feel like? How can we recognize, how can we judge, how can we evaluate when we are being the church? And I think that 2 Corinthians helps us answer that question. It gives us maybe a criteria, sort of a, a, a ruler or a, a measure for success of being the church, and gives us many examples um, along those lines. So I picked this theme verse because it mentions Jesus Christ in you, and I think that's the criteria for being the church. I think that's the criteria for real ministry, and what's amazing is Paul is able to use that one criteria on himself. There are questions about his authority. There are questions about his, um, his uh, validity whether he's an effective minister, and so he uses this criteria. But he also uses the same criteria on the Corinthians, on the church, and says, examine yourselves by this measure, by this criteria. Jesus Christ in you. Is he in you? Do you pass that test? Do you measure up? Is Jesus Christ in you? And as we know, God doesn't uh, give us a criteria or give us a measure and then gracelessly, sort of uh, lovelessly um, demand that we meet that. No. God gives us a way to measure up. God gives us a way to live according to the standard that he gives us. And we'll see that, hopefully, in, in 2 Corinthians. So um, pray with me a short prayer that the Spirit would enlighten our hearts and minds from this scripture. Let's pray. Spirit, I pray that as we breathe in the physical air, we would breathe you in right now, that you would enlighten our hearts and our minds 
in the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in Christ Jesus. In your name we pray, amen. So my structure for my sermon today, um, I borrowed from uh, a pastor in the church that I went to when I was in high school. He inspired me to, to go to seminary, and even if I visit him now and you were to listen to one of his sermons, he uses this uh, structure 99% of the time in his structure, in his sermons, which is what, so what, now what? <laughs> so I'm going to tell you what's in 2 Corinthians, and then so what does that mean for us, and now what should we do? Um, and so I'm borrowing that. Thank you, Pastor John Sherman. Um, preaching faithfully for decades, um, and I'm, I'm borrowing his structure. But I'm adding one thing to the beginning of it. I'm going to give you the why. Why did Paul write this letter? Because there's a lot in 2 Corinthians and in First and 2 Corinthians on why he did this. So um, the first thing, the, the first motivation for writing 2 Corinthians was giving the Corinthian church notice that he was planning to visit them, but he actually traveled past them to the regions of, of Macedonia, to the churches of Macedonia, and he plans to visit Corinth on his way back from that trip. So it would be interesting, um, I don't know, maybe if we were living in Corinth or we were part of the Corinthian church, we might say, oh, there goes Paul. I wonder where he's going. And so he wrote this letter to say, I, I meant to come to you, um, but my, my plans changed, so um, I plan to visit you on the way back. Don't worry, I, I, I'll, I'll come back um, on the way back. But he actually is going to ask them for money on the way back. One of the reasons that he goes to the churches of Macedonia is to comfort them, to minister to them. Um, but he actually picks up a donation of money from them that he's going to distribute to some of the other churches. It doesn't say where that money is going necessarily. There are other books of the New Testament where Paul um, takes up a donation for the churches of uh, Jerusalem. So we don't know where that money was going. Um, but he's going to come back on his way back to Corinth and say, Look, the churches of Macedonia gave money. Will you also give as well? And I'll talk about that more a little bit later. The second reason, and this is really the moral, uh, sort of emotional reason why Paul writes 2 Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians, uh, the occasion of that letter, there was a situation of immorality in the church. And the Corinthian believers had judged that situation wrong. And in fact, they were sort of bragging about how tolerant and merciful they were in allowing this immoral situation to persist. And in 1 Corinthians, Paul marshals all of his rhetoric, he sort of uses some really harsh language to address that situation in a letter, which is hard to do. If you've ever been in charge of anything, if there's a situation that you need to deal with, you kind of want to go in person, face to face, and, and deal with it. You don't want to fire up the email, right, and send an email off because you don't know how it's going to get taken. You don't know if they're going to do what you're telling them to do. But Paul had to. As an apostle, he's ministering here and there. Um, he can't be everywhere at once. And so he sends this letter, 1 Corinthians, um, sort of to judge this situation. And, and we'll get into that um, as well. But that was a motivation for writing 2 Corinthians is to sort of follow up on that harsh uh, situation. And then thirdly and lastly... And maybe in every epistle or letter that Paul writes, he defends his apostleship. In 2 Corinthians, uh, he talks a lot about his ministry and what it actually looks like versus what people think it should look like. And so a lot of what he says in 2 Corinthians is explaining, defending his apostleship. 
And so really, in fact, these three motivations will help me structure uh, the sermon um, for looking at 2 Corinthians. I've divided it into four sections. The first section is verse, uh, chapter 1 to chapter 2, verse 4. Um, and we'll kind of go on from there, and I'll give you... So I've split up 2 Corinthians sort of along these lines of the motivations that are um, driving the writing of the letter. So you really have to read this book for yourself. I'm skipping over so much. I'm summarizing so much. Um, and I really hope after hearing this sermon, you would be motivated to go read 2 Corinthians for yourself. And if you do, here's sort of a, a 3 two, one to get you interested. There are three things that Paul talks about over and over again in 2 Corinthians. One is ministry. If you were just to Bible search the word ministry, it's ministry, 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 ministry. And I'll talk about some of those instances. So it's a great book for what does real ministry look like? And I hope you are persuaded of that this morning. The second thing that Paul talks about over and over and over again is sort of this Satan versus God theme. Now, did that intrigue you? <laughs> um, I want you to go read this book. It talks a lot about Satan. If you were to just Bible search Satan or sort of devil or there's even mention of the, the serpent, those kind of things, uh, it gets mentioned a lot. But also if you were to search spirit or Christ, those are mentioned a lot too. And so Paul is talking about his situation in light of these spiritual truths or sort of the spiritual interpretation of what's going on. So it's, it's very interesting. The third thing that Paul talks about over and over and over again is boasting. Okay, so boasting is mentioned, I don't know, like 30, 40 times in 2 Corinthians. And in fact, it's this theme of boasting that ties 2 Corinthians with, with uh, 1 Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians, uh, Paul opens up by saying, not many of you were wise, but God has used the foolish things of, of, you know, foolish things of the church, the foolish things in his kingdom to shame the wise, to, to sort of uh, bring down the worldly powers and the worldly wisdoms. So this theme of boasting comes up in, in 2 Corinthians, and it's almost like Paul didn't talk about boasting. He held himself back from boasting on himself in 1 Corinthians, and now it's 2 Corinthians, and now he's going to let it all out. There's even a verse in 2 Corinthians where he says, I'm, I'm talking like a fool. I'm talking like a madman. You, you, you guys have made me do it. You made me say it. Um, and so he's defending his apostleship, and he has to talk about boasting. And so what ties First and Second Corinthians together is this quote. There's a quote um, that's in First Corinthians and in Second Corinthians. And so I wanted to give you this picture of the uh, bookends. I know it might be, you know, maybe you were raised and you kind of know what books are, but, you know, the, the whole technique of having bookshelves and bookends and those kind of things, bookmarks, that's, that's physical stuff, and you just look it up on your Kindle or something. But back in my day... I was raised, uh, and we had these antique bookends, okay? Bookends are something that you kind of squish together a group of books, and they won't fall off your bookshelf. These ones were, were wooden, and they look like a, a terrier, like a little terrier dog. When I say bookends, this is the picture that comes to mind. Um, but I wanted to give you this picture because there's a quote in 2 Corinthians that gets quoted word for word in, uh, in 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, um, where... Uh, Paul is, is on this theme, and he says, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And that's a big qualification for him. That's a big uh, adjective for him. In the Lord changes everything. If you're boasting not in the Lord, 
That's, that's the bad kind of boasting. You shouldn't do that. But if you have to boast, boast in the Lord. And if you're in the Lord, if you're boasting in Christ, if you're boasting in what God is doing, you're allowed to do it. So that connects 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. But really, the thing you should pay attention to, even if you go and read 2 Corinthians for yourself, is this theme verse um, that I've given. The criteria of Jesus Christ in you. Is Jesus Christ in you? And that's what we're going to talk about today. Okay, so let's get into the text itself, into the what of 2 Corinthians. How is Jesus Christ in us? If that's the criteria, if that's the measure, how is Jesus Christ in us? What does Jesus Christ do through us? And so we have this, this famous verse. I actually heard this verse uh, quoted in the past week a couple of times in a couple of different situations. Um, 1 Corinthians 1, um, 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. I think this idea, this theology of the, the God of mercies is a unifying theme, uh, a unifying concept, and it sort of shines its light on the rest of 2 Corinthians. It colors the rest of what follows after this. And so usually Paul leads with sort of a, a grand benediction like this. You know, if you read the book of Ephesians, he goes on and on and on and on and on, um, sort of with this doxology, um, talking about God and how God works. And in 2 Corinthians, he has so much other things, so many other items to address um, that he, this is his little doxology. This is his little blessing passage. And it's about the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. And I think it's, this has been in the works. This has been scheduled for months and months um, during 2 Corinthians, but I really think it's relevant to our Itaewon situation. It's made me think uh, how I can live more mercifully and giving comfort to others. Uh, what Paul says here, of course, is to his situation that he's addressing, but I think it can inform how we live as well. I think there's a special kind of victory in loving someone, giving them mercy, giving them comfort, and seeing them grow strong, seeing them persevere through a harsh situation. I, I am reminded of a story from my life. I asked my wife for permission, and she said, yes, I can use this. Um, one time, my wife, uh, Bethany Stallings, she was training for a triathlon. And it was, it's down in Tongyong, and she swims in the ocean, and there's kind of waves, and she has to bike for 40 kilometers, and then after that, run 10 kilometers. After swimming, after biking, run 10 kilometers. And when you have high standards, it's really easy to uh, use that as an excuse to be harsh on yourself or on others. Maybe you've seen an interview from an elite athlete and they say, I'm not harder on anyone than I am on myself, right? I'm, I'm, my, I'm my toughest critic. It's sort of an excuse for them to be harsh, right? It's sort of an excuse for them to say, we're trying to reach this high goal and the way we're gonna get there is by whips and torture um, and insults. And I tried not to do that. <laughs> I wanted to support my wife in a loving way, in a, in a comforting way, as she trained for this triathlon and as she ran this triathlon. 
And so um, Bethany took off for the run, and it was, it was brutal. She just had a 40-kilometer bike ride, and I'm, I'm being comforting. I'm like, okay, go, you can do this. And I watch her take off, and she kind of disappears around the corner, and I'm like, man, I hope she can run this thing all the way through. I hope she doesn't give up. I hope it isn't too tough on her. I hope she doesn't have to walk it or feel shame or embarrassment. But all I can do is sit there and hope for her. <laughs> I can't run the race for her. I can't make her do it. I could run, run alongside her and be like, come on, run faster. Don't walk. Only nine more kilometers to go. I could do that, right? I could totally do that. And many people do do that. <laughs> uh, but I didn't. I said, you can do it, go. And, and I just had to wait. And fortunately, Bethany, she's very tough, very strong. And she ran the whole thing. And she came back from, from the, the return point quicker than I thought. And it hit me. And it was like this moment. And I, I like teared up. I'm not the kind of guy who just cries at the drop of a hat, but I teared up. And I was like, she did it. She ran the whole thing. And I didn't have to yell at her. <laughs> um, so there's a special kind of victory that happens when you are merciful and comforting to somebody. I think we, we have this, this hitch, this hang up. Oh no, if I'm gentle to them, they'll never make it. If I'm gentle to them, they'll never perform at the highest level. They'll never achieve what they want to achieve. So I have to be harsh to them. I have to, to push them and maybe insult them. It's not true. It's not true. And so this, this passage really reminds us we should comfort and encourage, and that is how people will grow. That's how people will be nurtured. That's how people will achieve their highest potential. Okay, down off the soapbox. Let's all be more merciful to each other. Show each other comfort. How can we be the church? By encouraging with mercy, encouraging with comfort. But how can we do this? How can we be involved in this economy of mercy and comfort that, that God is? How is Jesus Christ in us? What does Jesus Christ do through us? Well, this is the second passage of the book, the second section of the book, um, chapter uh, 2, verse 5, through chapter 7, um, verse 15, the end of chapter 7. The ministry of the Spirit. So, Paul wants to address this harsh situation that he talked about in 1 Corinthians. The person that he condemned, the person that he judged through his letter uh, was sorrowful, was actually broken by the condemnation. This person was uh, sort of weak and uh, repentant, it seems like. Um, they, they sort of distanced themselves from the immorality that they were involved in. And so Paul has to be merciful to them. So the first thing that Paul addresses in this book is telling the Corinthians to restore this person. This is sort of the, the good result of church discipline. It actually happened, yes, it actually happens, it's possible. To exercise church discipline and call on someone to repent and condemn their sin, and they repent, and they relent, and they are broken, and then they are to be restored. So Paul says, don't forget to restore this person. Um, I have up on the slide the, the passage in 1 Corinthians. Um, I just want you to see how harsh this condemnation was. He said, when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present, he's not physically present, but his spirit is present, with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. So he puts that part in about boasting. They were tolerating the situation. 
It was a false mercy. It was a false comfort that allowed the person to persist in their immorality. So Paul has to marshal his, his authority, and this is what it means to be in Christ. What would happen if Christ were standing right there? And really, he is spiritually, right? Spiritually present. So in Christ, in the spiritual presence of Christ, we have to exercise discipline on this person. So that's harsh. It says, deliver this man to Satan. And this is the God versus Satan theme that we see in 2 Corinthians. In 2 Corinthians, Paul mentions forgiveness. Okay, so he's speaking to the Corinthians again. And he says in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 2, anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. I'm not physically present, but I spiritually dispense my, my forgiveness as well, my authority as well. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. This is almost another bookend, another connection between 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. We handed this man over to Satan, discipline, punishment, consequences. He has responded to those consequences. Don't forget to forgive him. Don't forget to restore him. Bring him back in out of the cold and back into fellowship with the church, into fellowship with God. So he mentioned Satan both times. So what does it look like to be the church? Forgiveness of someone who is in repentance, who is repenting, who is seeking forgiveness. We have to give it. And it's very interesting how Paul talks about forgiveness. Um, what he says really reminds me of Jesus and what Jesus says about forgiveness. There's multiple times where Jesus mentioned this, but one time is, you know, to whom much has been forgiven, uh, you know, we should forgive much. Are you participating in the economy of forgiveness? Then you will forgive much. It won't be too much for you to forgive and restore that person and bring them back. To give them mercy when they don't deserve it. To give them comfort even though they abused it earlier. So, uh, I talked about bookends. There's a bookend, there's a connection between 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. There's also bookends within 2 Corinthians itself. Um, in 2 Corinthians, uh, chapter 2, verse 17, I have my nice little bookend graphic up there, okay? Holding the, holding the books together. Um, For we are not, like so many, peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. And so he'll repeat this again in 2 Corinthians 12, um, but he'll add, all for your upbuilding, beloved. Paul is saying, those false apostles, they puff themselves up, they talk themselves up to you, and you elevate them in your, in your opinion, in your estimation, you're like, oh, that guy deserves my money, that guy deserves my attention. And Paul is saying, all that I've said, all that I've done is as commissioned by God. It isn't about me. I won't be very impressive if you're just looking at me. Because what I'm doing is commissioned by God, is in the sight of God, is spoken in Christ. You want to be impressed? Look to God. You want to be impressed? Listen to the Spirit. I'm not supposed to be impressive. And so he sort of bookends 2 Corinthians with this ties. He's going to kind of wander all around um, and talk about everything. But in 2 Corinthians, he's reminding them, look, my job isn't to be impressive. My job is to do what God has me to do. And by extension, the Corinthian church is to do what God has them to do. 
Restore this one who has been disciplined. Restore this one who seeks uh, your forgiveness and repentance. So how is it possible to minister and to, to have this, this uh, supernatural mercy, this supernatural ministry? Well, Paul talks about in chapter 3, the ministry of the Spirit. So um, Paul doesn't need external markers. He doesn't need to carry documents to prove to anyone that he's certified, verified apostle. He has a different kind of proof. And I think we have the slide for this. You yourselves are our letter recommendation, written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. And actually, if you read the passage, this goes on to remind Paul of the Ten Commandments, the tablets of stone that were delivered by Moses to Israel and represent the law. And this verse, this passage is sort of alluding to the Old Testament thought that in the new creation, in regeneration, in the redemption that God has, the law will be written on our hearts instead. How can we minister with mercy? How can we have this, this supernatural authority from Christ? Because the Spirit is written on our hearts, not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God. And so there is a very strong theology of the Spirit in 2 Corinthians. In fact, in chapter 3, uh, Paul speaks of the Spirit as Lord. There's a passage, uh, I'll just read it, it's not on the screen. Um, we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So he has called uh, God Lord, and he now calls the Spirit Lord. So sometimes people look at the Bible and, they're, and they don't see Jesus as claiming to be God, even though I don't think that's, that's true. Jesus is claiming to be God. Um, and sometimes people look in the New Testament and they're a little bit confused about who the Spirit is or what the Spirit is um, because there can seem to be not the, the strong claims for it that Christians make. The Spirit is God. The Spirit is Lord. We pray to the Spirit. But in 2 Corinthians, it's very clear and obvious that the Spirit is Lord. And in fact, the Spirit is written on our hearts. The Spirit is working in us to conform us into the image of Jesus Christ, who is the image of God. So how can we be the church? How can we minister mercy and comfort? Because the Spirit works in us. It's not just external tablets written with ink or uh, graven on stone but written on our hearts. So this uh, mention of ministry, the ministry of the Spirit, um, is parallel to ministry to the saints. So the third section of 2 Corinthians is about money, actually. <laughs> so um, Paul says ministry of the Spirit, this, this dispensing of forgiveness, dispensing of mercy, but he includes the dispensing of money financial means. Like I mentioned earlier, uh, Paul is probably on a trip to the churches of Macedonia to meet with them and counsel with them. They may have been going through uh, persecution or some kind of difficulty, but even in the midst of their persecution and difficulty, he takes up a collection of money from them to give to other churches in need or some of his ministries, and he writes to the Corinthians here to encourage them to do the same. And in uh, chapter 8, verse 8, Paul says, I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. 
So, you yourself, individually, maybe you feel a little bit weird about money. You try not to think about it too much. You're just like, okay, here you go. And you give to the church. You give to, you know, at, at one, once a year, you're like, okay, I'll write the check and give it to the charity. Maybe you've listened to a pastor or a preacher or someone up on stage like me right now talk about money, and it's a little bit awkward, or you don't know how to take it. I think it was the same for Paul. Um, I, won't, I won't drag you through the, the, the two chapters here where he basically, in not so many words, asks them to give money. But it's not a command. That's part of the ambiguity, maybe part of the awkwardness. It isn't command. It isn't, it isn't a necessary go to heaven, you have to give money kind of thing. But it is genuine proof of your love. It is genuine proof of your maturity. You will give if you have truly considered what God has done for you. The, the Corinthians, um, as you can tell from these two books, there's lots going on. They're kind of their own little drama. And it'd be easy for them to just focus on themselves and not think about the barrier between receiving help from the outside or giving help to the outside of their church. And so Paul has to kind of shake them out um, of that selfishness. So how can we be the church as well? How can we be the church like Paul is telling the Corinthians to be the church? We give generously. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians, for God loves a cheerful giver. There are many famous passages and, and phrases in 2 Corinthians. I can't, I can't even list them all. I've, I've, I've mentioned three, but there's 30. God loves a cheerful giver. So how can we be the church? We give out of our love. We give as a result, just an effect of our maturity and our love and our understanding of what God has given us. So now we're to the fourth and final section of, of 2 Corinthians where Paul has sort of dragged his feet but um, inevitably defends his apostleship. And in many different ways and, and says many different things to sort of present himself to the Corinthians once again as a valid apostle, as a true minister of God as someone to be trusted, as someone who was operating in good faith to plant the Corinthians and to grow the Corinthians in the sight of God. In 2 Corinthians 10.7, Paul actually kind of diagnoses the problem. So in the theme verse, there's a criteria for what you should be doing. Christ is in you. There should be this examination you can give yourself. Is Christ in you? Well, you need to give that test. Why? Because there's, there's a problem. There's something lacking here. And Paul says that you are looking at things as they are outwardly. You're judging by appearances. If someone were to look at Paul, the apostle, just outwardly, physically, they're not going to be impressed. And Paul addresses this. He says it specifically. I, who am so bold in my letters, when I come, I'm, I'm pretty meek and mild. Why is that? That seems to be a contradiction in the eyes of the Corinthians. Oh, you're, you're a contradiction. You're a hypocrite. You talk so tough in your letters. And then you show up and you're all merciful and comforting and forgiving. Come on, man. Stop being a hypocrite. He's saying, you're using the wrong criteria. You're looking at it outwardly. What you think is a contradiction would resolve itself if you looked at things truly, if you looked at the inward, spiritual truth of things. And in fact, this theme, again, this is the second time I've mentioned in this sermon where Paul sounds so much like Jesus. And in fact, the theme of looking at things outwardly is a theme through the whole Bible. 
Old Testament, New Testament. Samuel goes to anoint the king of Israel, and he shows up, and all of David's brothers, older brothers are there, and they're much more impressive, much more battle-tested. And the Lord tells Samuel, you're looking at things outwardly. I know David's heart. And we know that King David was a man after God's own heart, right? So how can we be the church? Look at things truly. Look at things with our spiritual eyes. Stop jumping to conclusions based on the outward appearance of things. This is a real problem in our world today. I won't go too much into that. I'm sure you can think of your own illustrations and examples. It's really easy to just look at the surface of things, kind of the external sign of things, and you have to. There's so much info, there's so much going on, you have to find some way to summarize it or make your, your decision-making process more efficient. We're all dealing with that kind of thing. And so it's really easy to get into a bad habit of judging things outwardly. But when someone shows up and they're an apostle and they're speaking things of God and the Corinthians say, ah, you're not impressive, we're not gonna listen to you. That's the wrong criteria. That's the wrong way to judge those kind of things. So we need to judge. We need to see like God sees. Paul, in this section of 2 Corinthians, very famously, um, tells a story about how he is given a vision from heaven. And he tries to be very, he even talks in like third person for a little bit, and then he says something about the third heaven, and he says something about revelations too, too great to speak of. In one, in one way or another, and in not so many words, Paul has very direct, very real knowledge of God and what God is trying to say, what God is trying to do. And really, he could boast. He could lead with that. Paul, the guy who went to the third heaven, come see, come on, come all, this Friday. I'll talk about my grand visions that I had in the third heaven. But he doesn't. He doesn't. Because those are, are real things. And probably it would be too hard to express what he heard, what he saw, what he experienced there. But he mentions it to boast. He mentions it to embarrass himself and say, look, I'm at the mercy of this powerful call that God has on my life. I've been given experiences that I just can't tell you about. And it's for me, and it's upon me, and it's my burden. But because of that burden I have, I have to share with you. I have to minister to you. And I think this is, in part, this is one way of, of him uh, sort of critiquing the false apostles who would show up and would do that. Look at me. Hear what I have to say. Give me money. I'm impressive. This was a problem in the Corinthian culture, even in the, in the broader culture, not inside the church. People were trying to gain a following. If you read 1 Corinthians, it says, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Paul, I'm of Jesus. Um, people wanted to be fans of the one true speaker, the one true cool guy. It's a real temptation. And so Paul says, I, I'm not gonna, I can't play that game. I have this burden of my calling that I must follow. And in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 12, very famously, he says, for when I am weak, then I am strong. He begs the Corinthians, judge me by the correct criteria. If I really am at the mercy of God, I would appear as I am before you. If my ulterior motive was just to profit off of you and get your money, I would appear impressive. 
but that would be just an outward judgment. So Paul learns this. He has to experience um, this, this spiritual sort of maturity. He has a thorn in the flesh that's given him um, sort of to humble him, and maybe it's what causes him to physically look unimpressive. We don't know exactly what that thorn in the flesh is, but he boasts in it. He boasts in the Lord. When I am street, when I am weak, then I am strong. So how can we be the church? By refusing to boast. By refusing to broadcast and advertise and market ourselves as we could. We could do that. We could say, hey, listen to me. I have the eternal gospel of God that could take you to heaven. Give me your money. We could, we could say that, um, but we shouldn't. We should resist that. We, we should resist that boasting. And even just as I think about it, it's that boasting that marks Satan. It's that boasting that marks evildoers. Have you ever noticed that? How people who are criminals or whatever, they always have to tell on themselves. Like if you just pay attention long enough, they'll just perjure themselves. They'll just say the wrong thing that they did. They say the criminal returns to the scene of the crime, right? It's arrogance and boasting that, that marks evildoers. So we shouldn't do it. Yeah, we have to be willing to appear humble, to not be impressive in person, to have people wonder like, oh, should I be paying attention to them? I don't know. We have to be okay with that because we are sharing from God. We are on the side of God. We are accountable to God. And trust me, if the light of the knowledge of the glory of God is shining on them and they see it, they'll respond to that. There is glory. Hear me. Not, uh, what I'm saying is that uh, not that the Christian faith or Christianity is unimpressive, that God is unimpressive. That's where the impressiveness and the glory and the majesty and the nobility lies, is in God and the appearance of God and the truth of God, not in ourselves. So what does this mean for us? The Corinthians had it confused. They were judging by appearance. And Paul says, examine yourselves. Is Jesus Christ in you? So do we have it confused? Are we impressive on the outside? Or are we noteworthy because Jesus Christ ministers through us because the Spirit is on our hearts to empower us to obey God. What does this mean for us? Do we show the proof of our love in the real world? It is real ministry. It is physical ministry. Do we give of our time? Do we give of our efforts? Do we give of our money out of the maturity and trueness, the, the genuine um, authenticity of our love? Are we doing that? Or are we too busy trying to be impressive? You can't do both of those things at the same time. Often if you're giving of your time and of your resources and of your money, it's not going to be that impressive. You're going to feel like, wow, this isn't enough. I'm giving all that I got, and the problem is still there, or the need is still there. I know I have to do my part. I really wish it were more. That humility, that weakness is when you're being strong. And lastly, uh, the ministry of the Spirit. Do we live with Jesus Christ in us? Is Jesus Christ in us? Can we answer this call of the theme verse to examine ourselves and test ourselves? 
Is God ministering mercy and comfort through me from my heart? Is the spirit at work there? Is Jesus Christ present there? So I have some action steps that I've kind of already mentioned, but uh, the now what? Now what should we do? Okay, okay, say I agree with you. And I'm going to read 2 Corinthians later. What should I do? Number one, do not judge merely by appearances. This is so hard to do. And we know we're not supposed to do it, but we do it anyways. We have to, right? When you're scrolling through social media, maybe you're swiping or scrolling or I don't know what hand motion to make. Maybe you're going through social media and you have to kind of judge. Okay, I'm not going to follow that person. I'm not going to follow that person. Oh, I'm going to like that post. You have to make these snap judgments, right? And so we get into that habit with spiritual things, but we shouldn't. When it comes to God, and it comes to the truth, and it comes to spiritual authority, judge truly. Secondly, we should mercifully forgive the lowly and repentant. There's this bad, bad thing that happens when humans are in a superior position, when you're sort of in a dominant position, and someone is broken, and someone is lowly, and they can't fight back. What do you want to do? Oh, I could win. Oh, I could really win right now. But you need to mercifully forgive the lowly and repentant. Church discipline is nothing. We should not do church discipline unless we're going to restore, unless we're going to forgive. Okay? We can't just do the one side of it, and we can't just do the other side of it. The Corinthians were bragging about how tolerant and, and merciful they were, but the immorality continued. If we're going to follow through on this, yes, we need to exercise the discipline. But if that person is repentant, we need to show mercy. We need to operate in forgiveness. How can we be the church? How do we know we're being the church? When we are an economy of forgiveness. Lastly, give generously to the church. Capital C, okay? Freedom Village Church, we see ourselves as part of the universal church, the part of the, the global church. You could, you could attend here. You could attend down the street. You can give here. You can give down the street. But give to the ministries of God. Physically. Money. Your time. A box. Give generously. It is the, the show. You want to talk about appearance? You want to talk about externals? Giving generously is the show of your maturity, the show of your love, the proof of your love, the result of your love, really. It's not some extra thing to your love. It's, it's just the outgrowing of your love to give generously. I'm going to ask the praise team to come up. I have a couple of prayer prompts for you. Let's enter into a, a time of, of prayer, um, examining ourselves but also recognizing uh, the greatness of God, the goodness of God.